You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Have you ever struggled with knowing about God, hearing about God, trying to obey God, but wondering if God is really with you, if God is close to you, struggling to feel God, kind of having that sense that maybe he's, he's far away and Maybe you even see people in worship and somebody's really worshiping and really connecting and you're standing next to that same person and you're like, you're not feeling anything and you're wondering, well, if God is here and God is with them, God, how come you're not with me? You know, have you ever been there? I know I have. And maybe we've all found ourselves there one time or another and especially at Christmas time, there's so much going on. The life is so busy during the holiday seasons. We have, you know, money uh, issues that are just overwhelming because some of us were just barely making ends meet and then all of a sudden we have to have presents and gifts and parties that we have to be a part of and, and pay for and then we have uh, these worries about family get-togethers and ke- connecting and flights or people staying at the house and getting the house ready and then there's the seems to be the countless parties that some of us have to go to or get to go to, really, but we it becomes almost a burden, and you think, man, God, there's just so much, this holiday's about you, but God, are you there? Are you really there? Are you with us? God, are you with me? This new series, uh, God With Us, deals specifically with this challenge of knowing that God is with me, with us, with you. During this holiday season, this series is going to take us all the way to Christmas Eve. I want to encourage you not to miss one. I know the holiday season can be busy, but make a commitment because you will understand, I believe, in a deeper way what it means to have God with you. We find that, that phrase, Emmanuel, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, But while he, Joseph, thought about these things, what was he thinking? Well, Joseph was the guy who Mary, maybe you've heard of her, she's the mother of Jesus, but Joseph was about to marry Mary. He was under a, an agreement, a betrothal, which is a little bit stronger than an engagement. It's a legal arrangement to be married. He was going to and supposed to be marrying Mary. But the problem is he got news that she's pregnant. Now, if you're a gentleman in the room and, and you had a fiancé and you just heard that your fiancé was pregnant, I think every one of us would, whoa, put the brakes on this whole thing. Let's reevaluate this whole scenario. What's going on with you? What's going on with us? So he's contemplating leaving her. He's thinking about just kind of moving on to save face and not cause a scene and to, you know, it's not his child. So he's thinking about leaving her, but then an angel of the Lord appears to him. And it says, while he was thinking about these things and he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you marry your wife, for, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She didn't have sex with somebody else. She, she didn't, uh, you know, break the vow of her agreement. She, she has not been in a relationship with, this is a miracle, Joseph. The Holy Spirit has caused her to be pregnant. Now try to explain that to your mom. <laughs> really, mom, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he said it's, it's conceived in her of the Holy Spirit. And she, Mary 
will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, we in English have Jesus, but the actual name that they were speaking was the name of the Hebrew promised one, uh, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus being Yeshua. Now, in Hebrew, the word Yeshua, the name of Jesus, means Savior. And if you were to say that same name in Greek, which is Isus, means healer. So he says, you're going to have a son, but it's not really your son. You're just going to kind of be the, 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 the father. You're going to be the guardian. You're going to be the dad who's in charge of raising this son, the angel says. And his name's going to be Savior Healer, for he will, it says, save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this is he. Then the angel quotes Isaiah 7, 14. He says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated means God with us. See, Christmas is about that. Christmas is about the very presence of God. The present that the Father gave to us was his presence it's God interacting with us. That's Christmas. This is what this is about. This is what our life is about. It's not just a holiday. It's about that moment when God said, I'm coming to you. To truly understand this, we need to understand who Jesus is. Now, before we dive into who Jesus is, I want to have a little fun with some Christmas songs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say one word, and then I want you guys to sing the rest of the line of these popular Christmas songs, all righty? Let's see if you've got this down. Where it'd be, here's a sample, easy sample, jingle. Okay, and then that's where you're in. All right, so that's, that's an easy one. So here we go. We... All right. All right, this is my favorite Christmas song, Chestnuts. Some of you guys are monotone chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost, yeah, they got you. Enough. Feel free to use the proper melody, all right? Away. Okay. All right. This one's tricky. Oh. No, 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 no. This is tricky. Listen to the note <laughs> as if I know the difference. Oh. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. Here's the other one. Notice the difference. Oh. Oh. Holy night. The stars are brightly shining. All right. Uh, here's another. Um, the... I feel like old... like. Old Baptist churches, okay. Um, have. There we go. Okay. Um, what? Someone's killing it over here. Oh, it's all right. All right, man, you got this down. There was a particular on first service, there was like a group over here that really, it was the Kims. They all knew the songs. Um, 
Uh, I'll be home for Christmas. Right. Okay. It's Christmas. Yes. All right. Uh, this one's kind of a meld of two words. Have a. Yes. All right. Man, I love it. All right. Nicole says, don't mess this one up. This one's sacred. Mary. Mary. Did you know that your baby boy? All right. She's got, that's going to, I like how yeah, the songs about Mary will offend people, but not the songs about Jesus. All right. All right. I'll have. Without you. I had to use two words because there's a lot of owl songs. Um, here's a couple easy ones. Angels. This group's not participating at all. <laughs> Thank you, Sierra. All right, this one's easy. Hark. All right, this one's a great spiritual classic um, that we should work into our worship set. Grandma. <laughs> that was the loudest one yet. You realize that, right? That was a, all right, now the last one. Um, joy. All right, some of these it's hard not to just keep singing. So go ahead in your mind, finish it out. Or you'll sit there uncomfortable. Today I want us to take a look at the oldest Christmas song that's been sung. Um, and it's, it's a Christmas song, not because it was about the holiday of Christmas, but it was about Jesus coming to earth. And it was actually sung in the early church, and we find it in the book of Colossians chapter 1. This section in Colossians chapter 1, it's verses 15 through 20, uh, is considered one of the earliest hymns in the early church, and it's all about Jesus in his life, in his birth. And depending on what translation you have, it's even laid out in poem or song form, depending on what translation you have. So let's take a look at this Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, a song about Jesus, who he is, and how he came for you. An ancient Christmas song. Colossians 1.15, he is Jesus. Remember, this is a, these are quotations from a song. We don't know the melody. We don't know how it went. Uh, went. We don't know how it was sung, but, but this is Paul, many believe, quoting an early Christian hymn, okay? So this is, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now that's one, that's actually was to be sung. As he wrote that, maybe the church at that moment stood up as they read the letter of Paul. Instead of just, this is what Paul writes, they said, let's turn to that song or actually let's repeat and sing that song 
that we all know so well that Paul wants us to sing at this moment. Let's all rise. He is the image of the invisible God as they began to sing. I want you to write this down. There are seven amazing pictures of Jesus in this song. And the first one is this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image. The word image there is the Greek word icon, which is where we get the word icon. Like if you have your phone, your iPhone or tablet or an Android or your computer, and you have the icons on your screen, that's not actually a a button that opens the program. That's a button to the link that opens the program. So as you put an icon on your computer, you click it and boom, you go to it. Jesus is the icon of the Father. When you click on Jesus, you get God. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. I like to think of it this way. Whether you have the icon on your desktop image or not, that program is still in your computer. You just can't see it. You can't see the numbers. You can't see the dashes. You can't see the zeros that make up the program. But you can see the icon. And the complexities of that program become a reality when you just click the icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. Right up at the top, the Apostle Paul says right at the beginning, one of the clearest descriptions of who Jesus is, right at the top, Jesus is God clothed in skin. In fact, he says it seven different ways in the next few verses. And I want you to know this, is that if you're going to know who God is, you need to know who God is if he's going to be with you. See, the better you know me, the closer we will be. The more you know about me and understand me, understand who I am and what I'm like, the closer we will be. A lot of times we like to keep Jesus at the peripheral of just some emotional songs and some application sermons that just help us live our life without really knowing who God is. If you want to know who God is, you need to know Jesus, his icon. The stamp of God is Jesus. And I tell you, good doctrine will develop a dynamic relationship with God. And it's where the verses become the very voice of God. And in this way, his presence is felt and sensed. When we know and have a clear and a biblical view of who God is and who Jesus is particularly, we will know that he is with us. A couple of things right off the top we need to let you know is that God is invisible. There are many verses that talk about it. We're like, I don't like that idea. I want to see God. Well, Jesus made it very clear no one will see him and live. Jesus said no one will ever see him. No one has ever seen him except, Jesus said, except the one who's from the very bosom or essence of God, which is himself. He told Moses this in Exodus, and it was spoken all through the Old and the New Testament. No one has ever seen, no one ever will see God because he is invisible, and he's also unapproachable. The Bible says he's a radiant light that is, a, in Hebrew says, is a consuming fire. To to get in the very presence of the glory of God in his fullness, we we would self-destruct. God is omnipresent. We can't get outside of God to even see God. This God that is omnipresent and invisible, we can never get to. 
You can't ever, ever get to him. You can't work your way there, meditate your way there, live enough lives if you believe in reincarnation to ever get there. God cannot ever be attained. You can't get to him. How can we know this invisible God who is unapproachable? The icon of God, the stamp of God, Jesus, he is the image. God came to us. God came to you. Or say, well, I don't understand because aren't we created in the image of God? Don't we look like God? Doesn't God like have two arms, two legs, two eyes, you know, a nose, a mouth, and two ears, and have hair on his back, you know, like some of you guys? No. It's not that we were created in the image of God. We were created in the likeness or the image of God to reflect who he is. In Genesis 2, the meaning there is that we are to, to basically reflect the, the God of, the, of all of creation. Unlike the animals, we have a desire for relational uh, bonds. We have this deep ability to love and we have this, this desire uh, to, to better our life and those that we care about too. We have emotions. These are the elements that make us like God, in the image of God. We were made in the image of God, but Jesus is the very image of God. Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That means he is the exact imprint of his nature. It says, sustaining all things by his powerful Word. Jesus is the invisible God in skin. Colossians 2.9, the next chapter says this, For in him Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head over all principality and power. Jesus is all God. He is the exact image. There is one God. Everybody say one God. There is only one God. That is the core of our faith. All through, I mean, the commandment one of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me because don't even make idols that look like anything because nothing is like me and you can never make a representation of me and there is only one of me and I am the supreme ruler, I'm almighty. I mean, through the entire Old Testament, one God, one God, one God, the Shema, which is sung in every great Hebrew gathering uh, in the Old Testament, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu. Oh, hero Israel, our Lord God is one. Jesus repeated that very Shema himself. The Lord God is one. There's one God. But there is a mystery. The mystery of what we call the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but is a word that we give to the concept of three in one. That there is one God who is three persons, this amazing mystery that, that no human being in their right mind would ever try to contrive and create because it makes no sense. There are not three gods. That would be polytheism. He is not one God who wears different hats. That would be modalism. He is not a God subdivided into different parts. That is partialism. See, a lot of times we try to explain God through through illustrations or through objects that just fall short. We like to say, well, God is like an egg. You have the shell, you have the white, and you have the yolk. Three parts making one egg. The problem with that is they can be separated. That would be like polytheism. 
Well, some will be like, well, it's kind of like how Ted, you know, you're pastor and then you're like husband and then you're like father. So you're like, it's like three different roles, but there's just one of you. No, that would be uh, modalism where we say that, that God is taking on different manifestations or personas. And that is not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes a mystery. But our finite minds who live in a three-dimensional world, will never understand the infinite in his multi-dimensional being aspect. So the more we try to explain the Trinity, the more we find ourselves in a whole. There is one God, three persons. There is one God. The mystery, the great mystery of God. This God is invisible, but yet he Became a man. The Father, I like, it's been said this the Father is the mind of God. Jesus is his words, it's the expressions of the thought of God. And the Spirit is the power that carries those thoughts. I've also heard it explained, I like to use this, is that the Father who is omnipresent is is the invisible, omnipresent God, while Jesus is God who is present with us, and the Holy Spirit is God who is present in us as followers of Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, the apostle, uh, near the end of his life, wrote this gospel based on handwritten notes that he kept in his journal. That's why the details are so uh, amazingly important, but yet also it was written later after a lot of the early testaments uh, were written. Uh, so it's much thicker in theology and ideals. But he says this, he begins with the basically the New Testament version of the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. He purposely parallels that to in the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was made with God in the beginning. Uh, sorry, he was with, he wasn't made. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was, that has been made in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the very spark that made us conscious beings. Think about that for a second. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Verse 14, the word, God, became flesh, that's Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. He literally tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is written by John the Apostle, who walked with Jesus. He had dinner with Jesus. They walked the dirt path with Jesus. They, they cooked meals together. He saw the miracles. Of, they laughed. They told stories. They stayed up late and laughed and told stories and played games and shared. Jesus imported. Think about this is John, the elderly John. He's coming to near the end of his life. Many believe when he wrote the gospel, John, based on his handwritten notes of walking with Jesus. And he says, man, God became flesh and we saw him. We saw him with our own eyes, he says. With our own eyes, we beheld the Father. The mystery of that moment, to be a disciple, when God Almighty, that moment when God became a baby, 
The only one never has been, never will be another incarnation of God in the flesh. Incarnation basically means in the flesh. You know, like concarne sauce when you eat Mexican food this afternoon. I'd like some extra concarne on it. Let's the meat sauce. Put a lot of meat on there. Jesus is God, concarne. <laughs> Second thing you need to know is that Jesus is supreme over all things. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. The NLT says he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. That's a better translation, actually. See, some see this verse, and this actually leads a lot of people astray. This verse has been used by uh, cults to teach false theology about Jesus. Because they say, well, Jesus is the first one born over all creation. They think that somehow the God of all eternity was all by himself when he created first his son. Boom, I have a son now. Son, do, just go ha have at it. Here's all the tools you need. Make everything. And we somehow think that God somehow created Jesus first. But that's not what that verse means. That word first literally means the first position of. So if you have firstborn, it's not a very accurate translation. It literally means the one who has preeminent position. It refers to Jesus as being the supreme position over all of creation. We know that because the next verse explains it even more. He says, now notice how it continues, verse 16, For through him, Jesus, God, the invisible Father, created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He, Jesus, made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything. Everybody say everything. Everything was created through him and for him. If Jesus were created and he created everything, then he created himself. And that's just silly. It's not possible. Jesus did not create himself. He created all things. He is the, who, who is uh, the supreme in position over all things. He's the creator of all things. This leads us to the next thing. Verse uh, 16 says, For through him God created everything. The third thing is Jesus is the creator of all things. Now, let me explain that a little bit. All things visible. All right, that's you and me. That's the stars at night that we see, the moon, the sun, our solar system. He created the galaxies next to our galaxy and the galaxies beyond those galaxies. He created the far reaches of the universe that we're still trying to figure out and explore. Jesus is the creator of everything visible. And it says the invisible. That means the spirit realm. That means the angelic forces and even those that were fallen are creations of Jesus. Those demons that rebelled against God himself, they are creations of Jesus. He created all things visible and invisible. Think about it like this. He created it for him, uh, by him and for him. He did not create the flowers for you. He did not create fruits and vegetables for your salad. And after Noah's ark, he said, you guys can eat all the meat. Thank you, God, for that. He told Noah, you can eat whatever you want. And like, God did not make cows taste good for me. He didn't make bacon taste good for you. It says he created everything by him and for him. Think about it. A comet vapor trails 
Comet Vapor's trails are up to 10,000 miles long. Now, just kind of get a perspective of that. It's like, a, like barely 1,200 miles from here to like Houston, right? What is it? How much is it? Help me out. How many? 1,200 to California. Oh, well, see, that's even better. So you got 10,000 long mile vapor trails, all right? So imagine having to go to California, all right, 10,000 times-ish. If you could take the vapor in that comet trail and put it in a bottle, it would take up less than one cubic inch of space. Saturn rings are 500,000 miles in circumference, but only one foot thick. If the sun were the size of a beach ball and put on top of the Empire State Building, the nearest star would be the equivalent of going to Australia. Earth travels around the sun at eight times the speed of a bullet fired from a gun. There are more insects in your yard than in the entire state of Texas. In one square mile of rural land, there are more insects than all humans on the planet. That's comforting to know. Go lay out in your yard. <laughs> it's like millions are around you. A single chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information. Your chromosomes that you can't even see with the naked eye. How much information is one chromosome of 20 billion bits? If that one chromosome were written out in book form in a typical language such as English, it would be 4,000 volumes per chromosome. The point is this. God is the creator of all things. It's been said that when you look at great art, like look at some of the great art on the screen. When you look at great art, it's been said that every piece of art has a soul of the artist, has a piece of the soul of the artist in it. That you can know the artist by the art that he or she produces. They define a lot about who they are. Well, the same is with creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. They point to an artist. It's like this. The most extravagant, most beautiful, most expensive wedding ring a woman can wear is not enough because that ring points to the man behind the ring. She doesn't want a ring. Well, be nice to have a ring. It means you're getting married. But the ring is not enough. She wants the man behind the ring. When we look at creation, it's the ring of God. When we look at creation, it's like no matter how beautiful, no matter how dy dynamic, no matter how extravagant it is, when we look at the galaxies, when we look at the intricacies of our life, of our chromosomes, of the mysteries of the, of the universe, when we look at it all, they point to the man behind the ring. They point to one who is greater. They point to Jesus who is the creator of all things. He goes on to say that Jesus he is before all things. What does that mean? We're at this down number four. That means that Jesus is forever, eternally before all things. What does that mean? It means that Jesus didn't show up 2017 years ago. Or to be exact, 2015 years ago. Jesus didn't just show up and go, all right, guys, what's the plan? God, you brought me here. What do I do now? 
He has eternally been present since the beginning before all creation and will be here long after any creation dies away or is destroyed or taken away. We need to understand that Jesus is not God Jr. Jesus is not the Father's Bubba. Jesus is not God in training. Jesus is the God of eternity with skin. He is God in the flesh, and he always existed and always will. He didn't just show up. He's been there forever and ever. In Revelation, Jesus refers to himself and the angels a couple of times. Over six times, he refers to himself as the Alpha and Omega. I am, he says, the Alpha and Omega. Which, by the way, God calls himself that throughout the Old Testament. Jesus in Revelation says, I'm that guy. I am Jehovah in the flesh, Yeshua. That's me. I am the God of all creation, of all eternity past. The sing, the song that Paul is singing is declaring that God is Jesus eternally. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Some translations say sustain. And I want you to write this down, that Jesus holds and sustains all things together. You know, to this day, uh, scientists struggle to figure out how an atom can hold itself together. Because like charges repel and opposites attract. We can't see atoms. We are breathing atoms right now as we are breathing oxygen. The typical oxygen atom has eight protons with a positive charge, eight neutrons that have zero charge, no charge, and eight electrons uh, that have a negative charge flying around it. Because like charges repel and opposites attract, there's eight protons with a positive charge just hanging out together. This shouldn't happen. We shouldn't exist. We shouldn't have air. We shouldn't have oxygen. They should fly apart. But yet here we are. In the 20s and 30s, they discovered that there is a powerful nuclear force that holds these atoms together. They know how, but they don't know why. Why is this happening? They can define the how, but they don't know the why. They're not sure why it fully works, kind of like gravity, it just does. But they did find that if you fire protons into the nucleus, it creates nuclear power and explosions. Here's the point. There is a mysterious power that holds not only the atoms together, but also the entire universe together. The Bible says that's Jesus. Jesus holds those atoms together. You exist because he says you can exist you breathe because he says you can breathe. We see because he says we can see. God did not create the world, say, let there be light and let the ball roll. He did not create and check out. Jesus created all things and actively holds all things together for his pleasure. By him, through him, for him, he's the beginning, the middle, and the end. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
That means Jesus is pastor of Living Way Church, not me. I'm not the pastor. Jesus is the head. I'm the kind of associate pastor, the one who's been kind of given the responsibility. But Jesus is the pastor. But he's not only head of his creation or active in creation, he's also active with his people. He's active in his church. Those that are truly his, that understand who he is, he is active in his church. It says, who is the beginning? Jesus, who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. This is number six. I want you to write this down, that Jesus is head over all things, including the dead. See, that kind of trips people up. What's that mean, firstborn from the dead? You see, Jesus was the first to be resurrected and glorified. Now, you might know that when Jesus came to earth and he walked this planet, he rose people from the dead. He said, Lazarus, my friend, stinky and smelly, get out of here, man. And Lazarus came out of the grave, stinking up a storm. First thing they did is hug him and say, hey, man, get a bath, right? He rose from the dead. And he also raised uh, this little girl from the dead. And he raised another person from the dead. And, and we have these pictures that even at, his, at the cross, when he died for our sins, that there was an earthquake and even some people that were recently buried came out of the grave. So why does it say he's the firstborn from the dead? How is that any different than all the others that were resurrected from the dead? Here's the difference. He's the first resurrected from the dead who is glorified. What's that mean? When he came out of the grave, he looked just like himself. But he walked, he talked, he ate, he fixed a meal. Oh, and he walked through walls. And he flew. We're like, what? You see, he says, Jesus is head of the church. And in Jesus, we get a glimpse of what the church's future is. For those of us who are in Christ, we have an opportunity that one day Jesus will come back. And when he does, if we are dead in Christ, we will be resurrected and glorified just as he was glorified. And as he was glorified in the flesh, he was the firstborn raised from the dead and glorified. We will then be resurrected and glorified in, in our bodies like his. If you're not a Christian, you will not be raised and glorified. You'll be raised to judgment. But he says, man, he's the head of the church. And if you're one of his kids, if you're part of his family, then there's a day when, when what you saw me do, guys, that's your future. That's your story. You see, the Bible says in Corinthians that death finally loses, not at the resurrection of Jesus, but at the resurrection of the saints. That is when death has finally lost its sting when we are risen from the dead. And Jesus paved the way. He is the resurrection from the dead, glorified, the firstborn of the dead, as the song says, so that he might have preeminence. That means Lord of all. In him we see our future. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness, everybody say fullness, should dwell. That word fullness is the word pleroma. It's where we get the word plethora. It means many. But in the context here, it means totality. That in the totality, Jesus is the totality, the pleroma of the divine. He's not a piece of God. He's not a part of God. Sometimes we look at God like we're eating a, a, a pumpkin pie. 
that somehow God is a pie broken up into three parts. And, you know, today it's all about the Father, right? And today it's all about the presence of God. Holy Spirit peace, I want that peace today. Or, or all of a sudden we think, man, it's Christmas time, let's pull out the Jesus peace. And we're like, somehow God is three pieces of a pie. That's partialism. God is not broken into pieces. The totality of the divine is in physical form in Jesus. He is the ruler of all. He is preeminent over all, even the dead in the afterlife. God who is invisible made himself visible. Jesus, the mystery. Verse 20 says, and by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. And by him, Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is what's amazing. Is not only did the cross redeem us with God, but the cross redeemed creation, the universe with God. It says things in heaven or things on earth, all of it has been made at right and healed through the blood of the cross. Here's the last thing I want you to write down is that Jesus alone has the power to heal creation, his creation. See, a lot of people think, well, I, I'm a God is just like one of us. You know, or not God, but Jesus. Jesus is just one of us. He's just a good person, a good man who was filled with God, had a lot of God in him, or who became God, maybe. But he's a good guy. And anybody could have done what Jesus did. Now, I wouldn't have done what Jesus did. I'm too selfish. But anybody could have done if they were a good person, if they'd done the right things, if they lived a right life, if they were able to be sin-free, and, and if they were to make it to the cross and sustain that, God would have risen from the dead, and that would have been enough. No, no, nobody else could have done it. No, you could not have done it. We still can't do it. Through our actions and through our deeds and through our best efforts, we can't, you can't do it. There's not a ruler on earth that could do it. There's not a politician on earth that has a plan to heal this earth, to heal the universe. There's not a president. There's not a government. There's not a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a wife, or a friend, or a pastor, or a preacher, or a church that can heal the world. There is not a single person that could have hung on the cross and bared the weight of our sin as the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future. At that moment, for those hours on the cross, he bore the shame and the sin of the world. Only God could have carried that weight. Only God could bear that. Jesus alone has the power to heal his creation. Only his blood. Only the blood of his cross. It says Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. That baby was born to die a horrible death. As we sing away in the manger in silent night, and we see that, that cradle, which it wasn't in a cradle, it was in a food box. As we see that manger, which we think is just a bed, it's what the animals ate out of. As they wrapped him in the, in the rags and the extra cloth and garment that they had sitting around and they laid him in that food box, they sat in wonder as Joseph thought, who is this son of mine that it's not from me? And, and Mary says it's not from any man she knows, but from the Holy Spirit. Who is this? 
You see, all through their life, the Bible says that Mary pondered these things. She even was conflicted about the miracle that she was a part of. It wasn't until the resurrection that we truly see that Mary and her other children, Jesus' half-brothers, really got a sense of what he was and who he was. And so he laid in that manger. They just had a glimpse of what it was. He was to save us. But I don't think they saw the cross. But that's what he was there for. He came to die. To pay for my sin. Not by my actions or my efforts. He alone. Because he alone gets the glory. See, that's the ancient Christmas song of the early church. But I love what Paul does next. He makes it personal. He sings this song. He quotes this song. And then he says in the very next verse, and you. This is for you. He says, and you who once were alienated, that means far from God, enemies in your mind by the wicked, by your wicked works, that means our lives were opposite of what God had for us. And we were not living or desiring or wanting the things of God. We were wicked in our heart and our minds. That was me. He says, yet now he, Jesus, has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy, that's set apart, and blameless, that's forgiven and new. And above reproach in his sight, that means to be made different. The invisible God became visible for you. For you. For you. We were enemies. We were the criminals. But yet Jesus paid our ransom and served our out our time on the cross. He left the throne of heaven to walk with us. The very breath he breathed into his creation, he breathed into his own lungs. The very dust that he formed mankind out of, he kicked between his toes on those trails between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. He left the throne of heaven to die for us. To reconcile. He's, that word used there means to bring us home. He left to bring us home. He left his throne. He who is God of all creation, who has the wealth of the universe in his hands, became poor so that we might be rich beyond the galaxies in him. That's the joy of Christmas. It's found here. God came to us. He gave us life and meaning and purpose. He's come here for us. The mystery of God in the flesh. That's why the heavenly angels shouted and began to sing uh, to those shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, it says, But the angels said to them, those shepherds uh, in the field that night, they said, Don't be afraid, the angels said. I bring Good news. That word good news is also translated gospel. That means life-changing, life-altering news. It's not just, hey, did you hear? It's going to be a nice day today. It's going to be like a, a nice 76 degrees today. That's good news. No, this is life-changing, life-altering, history-teeter-tottering news. He says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. He says, today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. And he is the Messiah, 
the Lord. You see, the Messiah is the one that they've been praying for. They've been waiting for for thousands of years. God, bring us a Savior, a Messiah, someone who will rescue us. The promised one is what Messiah means. God, you promised. You promised. Where is he? The angel says, the Messiah, the Lord, is here. He says, and you're going to find him. You're not going to find him in a big castle with flashing lights and fireworks. You're not going to find him on a throne or in a bed made of scarlet. He says, you're going to find him, it says. You'll find him wrapped in cloths, leftovers, lying in a manger in a food box. The humble arrival of the king. And suddenly it says a great company. Some translations say multitude. The word there is plethos. It's where we get the word plethora. He says, and a great company, the plethos of the heavenly host, countless numbers, a multitude appeared with that angel that was talking to them. And they began to praise God saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those whom his favor rests. You see, in round one of Jesus, when Jesus comes, that's known as the advent. The second coming of Jesus is called the second advent. His first advent or his first appearance, round one, he came as a humble servant. He came as a baby in a food box to grow and to bear my shame, to bear my judgment, to bear my sin. Jesus came round one in humility. But in round two, Jesus will be coming riding on a white horse in full glory as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will see him as he truly is. This is when the final part of this verse happens in Colossians. He says, when that day happens, he will come to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. See, there's a bigger mystery than the Trinity. And the mystery of the question is, why would he do this? Why would God come? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. God wasn't lonely and created Adam and Eve because he was lonely. He is completely self-sufficient. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He doesn't have good days and bad days. He doesn't have depressing days and moments where he wished he could just talk to somebody. He didn't create anything because he needs us. He created, the mystery is he created us because he loves us. Why would he come? The greatest mystery of all, he loves you. God loves you. That's what Christmas is the reminder of, that God loves you. He came for you. And he came to take you home with him. And he's coming back one day to fulfill that promise. And he's gone ahead to prepare a place for you. So when you see that picture of a baby in a manger, when you see the nativity under the tree or on the shelf or in an ornament tucked inside the tree, when you sing the song away in a manger or think of the song Silent Night or Oh Holy Night, when you envision the baby Jesus, he's not just a messenger. He's not just a symbol. He's not just a piece of God or a part of God. He is the divine 
God with skin in our very presence. That is God. That little baby in totality, that is God. So the greatest present of all is that the Father would send his presence to all. So as we celebrate the holiday season this year, and we talk about God being with us, I want you to know that God is with you in your pain and in your sorrow and your suffering. He is with you in your trials. He is with you in your tears. But God is also He's with you in your joys. He's with you in your laughters. He's with you in your peace and in your blessings. God is with us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you came to us. God, thank you, Lord, that you came to me. God, I don't know why you would come for me, why you would come for any of us. God, we're dark in our heart, vile in our mind. God, we're criminals in our actions. We are enemies of God. But God, you came you came because you love us. And I don't understand that, Father. I mean, I don't understand all the, the intricacies, the, the philosophy, the theology, the understanding of the Trinity. God, it just blows my mind. But God, even a greater mystery than that is that you would love me and that you would love your creation, that you would care for them so much to come and become one of us. And God, as we celebrate that, that coming, as we celebrate that moment when you became flesh, when you took on the form of a baby and grew up your whole life to die for us, God, as we remember that this year, God, I pray that we would find you in the busyness, in the chaos, in the worry, in the concern, Father, in the, in the stress of our finances, in the parties, Father, in the Christmas decorations, in the hanging the lights, God. God, let us find you. Some of you here are in a, in a tough place in your walk with God, and Christmas is not something that you're looking forward to this year. Maybe you've lost someone that you love or care for, or maybe you've broken up with somebody that you care for, and they're not with you, and it's just a reminder of being alone. Or perhaps you're looking at the tree, and you're like, what's the point? Why put it up? You, you're not looking forward to the Christmas parties or the lights or the trees or the gifts, and it's just all just not fun for you, but there is a bigger meaning to all this, and it's not the presence or the gifts or the tree or the lights. It's God loves you. He came for you, and he is with you right now through Jesus Christ. So would you just take a moment just to talk to Jesus where you are? Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I want to walk with you. Show me what it means to be a disciple, to walk with you, God. Walk with me. Forgive me my sins. Have that conversation with God this morning. Or maybe you're here and you're just stressed out about the holidays and you're feeling distant from God. Just say, Jesus, I need to know that you are with me. Holy Spirit, I need your presence in my life.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me, forgiving me, and being with me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.